Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is no violation. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us, Lord, that you would help me to teach this text properly, Lord. We pray that your spirit would move amongst us, Lord, that you would help us to have understanding, Lord, and application in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So as we sort of jump into this section, the longer I spend in Romans, the greater my appreciation is for the, the mind and understanding of Paul's, like just his understanding of the whole scriptures and how God moved throughout history. We go week to week, we take chunk by chunk sort of together, but they're so seamless in how they fit that we have to continually remind ourselves, how does this section fit into the whole section of what Paul is writing? And so to back up, going back to Romans 
uh, chapter 1. You don't have to necessarily turn there. But Paul starts out in the first seven verses with an introduction. He introduces himself that he's Paul the Apostle and that he's writing to the believers in Rome. There's a huge parenthetical statement as he starts speaking of the gospel. He interjects a lot of stuff in between there. But he's never met these believers in Rome. We see that from the the next few verses from 8 through 17 that Paul's never met them. He's hoping to establish a relationship with these believers that he's never met because he wants to go there. He wants to encourage them. He wants to teach them. He wants to be encouraged by them for their faith. Ultimately, he wants to get there so that he can be launched to the parts of the world that, that hadn't had the gospel received yet. Namely, he wanted to get to Spain, and he was hoping that through this letter, it would be sort of an introduction of who he is, what he believes, what he stands for, that they would prepare some funds for him so that when he got there after the time that he'd spend, that then they could fund the rest of his trip onto Spain so that he could proclaim the gospel where no man had proclaimed the gospel before. By the time we get to verse 18 of chapter 1, we see that Paul is now into the the body of his letter. In chapter 1, verse 18, he tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He begins to share that, that all humanity has fallen short of the glory of God, that whether you are a, a humanist, one who just seeks pleasure, uh, you have no belief in God, You're not grounded by any sort of morality. You're just sort of living life to the fullest that you stand condemned. And as we turn the page into chapter two, he then addresses the moralist, the one who is uh, maybe without God, but they believe in right and wrong, that, that they believe that, yes, there is a way you should live. And from there, he moves into the if there was a term, the religionist, those who had base their salvation, base their relationship on God, on doing works and good deeds and earning their way to heaven, he addresses them. By the time he sort of lands this first section, in verse 20 of chapter 3, we see that he's made this case that nobody can stand before God. Everybody is guilty and their sin is worthy of death. That nobody can speak, nobody can justify themselves before God. He shut their mouth. They are guilty. It's a bleak situation. And then two weeks ago, we covered verses 21 through 26. It's this, this ray of sunshine that comes up in Romans. And Paul says that uh, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. He says that this righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ That through faith, God declares that you're justified. It's a legal term. The opposite of justification is condemnation. It doesn't mean that you're sinless or or anything like that. It simply means that God declares you righteous on the basis of faith. That Jesus had paid for your sins. By the time you get down to verse 26 of chapter 3, Paul says his righteousness at the present time so that he, being God, would be just and the justifier. He's just in that no sin was left unpunished. All of the world's sin was placed upon Christ on the cross because God is just. He is holy. Sin 
has to be taken into account. And then we're told in verse 25 that as the wrath of God was revealed onto Christ, or not revealed, but placed upon Christ, that as Christ took the sins of the world, that it was, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That as the wrath of God is unleashed on Christ, we're told propitiation means satisfied. That the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ's offering. And through faith, we come into the shelter of Christ. That we stand justified, not because of our sinlessness or our good works, but simply because of Christ's work on the cross, that he was our substitute. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ verse or in Jesus verse 26. And so from that statement Paul hears a number of questions, objections, probably because these are the objections that he had before he came to know Christ as savior. He starts in verse 27 with this question, where then is boasting? Remember earlier in those first three chapters, he says, he asked the question, what value is there in being a Jew? I thought we were God's chosen people. I thought we had something to be proud about. And Paul says it is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so Paul begins to deal with this the sin of arrogance and pride the gospel levels the field we are all equal before god we are all sinners we all stand condemned the jewish people in their religion obeying the law or so they thought did not set them apart from other people in a way that they were sinless When you come to the gospel and you receive Christ, it's a humbling thing because you're acknowledging, I can't do this on my own. And he says it's stripped away. The the law doesn't give us arrogance. The law just exposes our situation before God. Then in verse 29, he says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Where he's going in Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, the one of the passages that's found on the mezuzah that the Jewish people still to this day, if you go to Israel, be on the right side of every doorpost. It's the great proclamation for the nation of Israel. It begins with the phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A great doctrinal truth that God is one. There are not multiple gods. Israel sat in the midst of a culture of polytheism where people believed in hundreds of thousands of gods and all sorts of gods. But the scripture reveals that God is one. There is only one God overall. And so he asked the question, dealing with this great issue of discrimination between the, the, the Jewish people who couldn't stand the Gentiles and the Gentiles reciprocated the feelings to them. They didn't like one another. Now in Christ, you have these two groups as one sort of at war with one another. And so Paul asked this question, or is God the God of the Jews only? Certainly The Jewish response would be, no, God is one. He is Lord over all. But their practice was sort of hypocrisy. Their their practice didn't align with their belief system. And Paul is about to expose it. He says, 
Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? They'd have to say, yes, of course, because there's only one God. Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. He describes these two groups. The Jews are the circumcised. The the Gentiles are the uncircumcised. He said there's two groups. They both will be justified how? Through faith. One God. From this, he asks the third grouping of questions. It says, do we nullify the law through faith? One of the issues in this letter that Paul is dealing with, that he dealt with through his whole ministry, is that he no longer subscribed that the law was of any value, that he was proclaiming antinomianism, which is a big fancy word for basically saying, you're, you're cheap grace, you live under grace, you don't have to... You don't have to honor God. You don't have to do all the rules. There are no rules. Just live life, be married, do whatever you want, because God's grace will cover a multitude of sins. They kind of warped Paul's thing. All the Judaizers would follow him. They say, no, you have to obey our laws if you expect to be saved. And so Paul's addressing this. He's going to explain it more in Romans 6 when we get there. But he's asking the question, so if we live by faith, if we're walking by faith, Does this mean that we've nullified the law, that the law is no longer valid, that all of the commandments, the 613 commandments found in the Old Testament, are are, are these done away with? And he says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. I'd have you, if you'll turn with me over to Galatians chapter three, we'll take a little detour. I want to read this passage and then I'll ask you guys to sort of Keep it in your mind so we don't have to flip back and forth to it. But I'll refer to it. I think I will at least. So you know where it is when I refer back to it. Galatians is thought to be described. I I believe it was one of Paul's first writings. It's referred to as a mini Roman. So much of the the things that Paul addresses in Romans, he this is like the um, the condensed version in Galatians. And at the end of chapter 3, Galatians 3.23, Paul writes this. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So they're saying, did you nullify the law? Paul's saying, absolutely not. What we're doing is we're, where did he, I don't want to make up my own word. We established the law. So Paul says the whole purpose of the law was to show you that you need the Messiah, that you can't keep the law. If you try to obey the law, you're just going to be shown that you're a sinner. And so Paul says, we're actually establishing the law because we're admitting that we can't do this. That only the Messiah, only God can keep his standard. And so the law simply existed always to point us to faith in the Messiah. We look back to his coming. They look forward to the promise. Now, I want to read ahead. We haven't covered it yet in our section today, but I'm going to refer to it later. He continues from this and he says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ 
have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither Mexican nor American. I just inserted that for our context. Because we need to hear that as a culture. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants according to the promise. Now, just kind of pack that away in your brain and we'll, I'll refer to it in a second. So back to Romans. So the third question, did we nullify the law? Did we nullify the law through faith? So faith, that means we just believe. That, that means we're not doing. That just means we're believing. So if we're just believing and we're not doing the law, does that mean we're just tearing up the contract and walking away from what God's revealed to us? And he says, no, we established the law. The, the law is simply, it points, simply, I mean, it's a huge thing. It points us to Christ. It shows us our great need. So through faith, we're, we're confirming what the law says. We are standing with it and saying, yes, I believe what the law says. It says that we're, we all have sinned. We've all fallen short. He quotes from Isaiah, not one has done good. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to expand upon these thoughts. So he, he starts with the question, what then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? He's going back to the source. The, the father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them. Just a good fun song. I'm not going to start March. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> He's going back to the source. Well, what, what, what about Abraham? What, what do we know from Abraham? Does Abraham speak to the things I'm talking about? In today's context, I don't want to get political. I don't want to, not my intent, but in our nation, I've noticed in the divisiveness of our nation right now, the discussion goes back to George Washington and the founding fathers and the constitution and saying, what did they say then? This is our founding document. We need to go back to what they said to understand how it works out today. So this is sort of what Paul's doing to his Jewish brother. He's going back to Abraham. What do we say about Abraham? Our forefather, according to the flesh, is found. Did he find righteousness through works, through obeying the law, through, through his actions? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has every right to stand up, inhale his air, prideful chest, I did it. But then he says, but not before God. Maybe, maybe amongst his fellow countrymen, but not before God, because his righteousness is but a filthy rag before God. So then in verse 3, there's a phrase there that I would encourage you to highlight circle star draw arrows all around your bible pointing you there put a stick note in your page one of the most important questions that you should ask daily or however often you need to 
you're faced with a decision, you're faced with an issue, you're struggling over something. Look where Paul goes. Paul the apostle doesn't go to his authority, his special revelation from God. He says, for what does the scripture say? Paul's authority came from the word of God. He's, he's reasoning from them and his, where he takes them is to the scriptures. And that's where we need to go if you're struggling. What does the scripture say? Sometimes the scripture might be totally silent and then you're stuck to like seeking wisdom and you know whether you should buy that car or not buy that car, whether you should move or not move. The scripture doesn't speak on everything, but you should start with, does the scripture say something on this issue? As you're watching TV, if you're watching the religious stations and people are speaking, ask yourself, what does the scripture say in light of what they're saying? Sometimes it will end up attracting you more to the person because like, ah, this person knows the word. Other times it'll say, I can't watch this person because it doesn't align with scripture. But he asked the question, well, what does scripture speak on this issue of Abraham? The Jewish people would absolutely understand what Paul's about to write. We might not. So I'm going to ask us, hold your place in Romans and turn to Genesis chapter 15. So we can review the story so that we can get caught up with what happened way back when. Genesis is a very important book. It's the foundation of the world, the origins, everything. So much of the New Testament finds itself going back to this book. And in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is about to receive a covenant from the Lord. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God had given him some commands to say, go do these things. Abraham begins to respond. He begins to obey. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. I just want to pause there. I want to read that over again. We all have stress. We all have worries. We all have transitions in life. I have the gift of worry. It's my spiritual gift. And so when I see this, it's just like, man, that's encouraging. What does God say to Abram? Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. And how true is that today? God's your shield. He doesn't want you to be afraid. He'll take care of you. We sing songs that will trust in him, but let's apply those songs to our life. Know that he's there working. Okay, back to the text. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is one born in my house is my heir. He basically says, Lord, like I'm an old man. I'm, I'm getting up here in age. I, I don't know how old he was actually this time. We're going to see that uh, at the end of this chapter or the end of 16 that he's 86 years old. He's neared the end of his life. God says, I'm going to bless you beyond your like you. It's going to be great. And he says, well, what good's money going to do to me? I have no children. Anything financially or any blessing that you give me, when I die, it's just going to go this punk kid who's living at my house because he happened. I mean, he didn't say punk kid. That's just what I read. 
He's like, I'm just going to go to this guy, Eliezer, who's like, he's from Damascus. He's living with me and I have no heirs. So every, whoever's just there, they'll argue over it. It'll become theirs. So then God speaks to him in verse four. He says, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So Abram's like kind of like moping. God's saying, I'm going to bless you. He's like, what are you going to do for me? I don't like all I want is a kid and I have no kids and you, you give me stuff. It's just not, it's not going to stay in my family line. And God says, hey, come on, go step out of your tent and look up into the sky and look at the stars and begin to count them if you can count them. And then he says, that's how many descendants you'll have. And at that moment in verse six, we get Abram's response. And this is the verse that Paul quotes in Romans chapter four. What's recorded here in Genesis, it says, then he believed in the Lord and he, that's God, reckoned it, reckoned it to him as righteousness, that he was justified because of faith. He believed what God said and in his faith of trusting God, he was declared righteous, not by works, but by faith. We need to, to correct our thinking. So often our culture, we think that there's a great disconnect in the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is the same today as he was yesterday, as he'll be tomorrow. The story of the Old Testament and the New Testament fits succinctly together. It's the story of the Messiah coming. It all fits. And and there was faith back then. Abram had faith in God and what he said and the promise of what would come. If we follow through the story, it's the story of where God says, hey, go get me a heifer. Go get me a goat. Go get me some animals. I've been in Valley Center long enough. I should know a turtle dove, a young pigeon. Abram kind of knows what's going on because this is a covenant where they would, a few weeks ago, I brought Larry up here and I said this, where they would find a, 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 a two hills that came together that formed a ravine. And then he would slice the animals in half, one on one side, one on the other side. Their blood would drain into the little valley. And God says, hey, go get these things for me. These things, these animals. Abraham's scratching his head going, uh-oh, I know what this means. In that day, if I wanted to make a deal with somebody, this is the contract that they would sign. And as the blood, they'd walk through back and forth saying, if I don't uphold my side of the bargain, so this blood is on our feet, may it be my blood. And if you don't hold your side, may it be your blood. So it makes perfect sense in verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on a- upon Abraham. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. He sees what's going on. And he's like, this is not good. I'm not able to uphold this sort of bargain with God. And so God puts him to sleep. And in verse 17 through 21, we see that God walks through that blood alone saying, this covenant that I'm making with Abraham is not conditional on Abraham or Abram at this point, fulfilling his part. I'm going to uphold it. 
And in chapter 16, we see their lapse of faith. His wife, Sarah, is like, there's no way. You're old. I'm old. I'm old and I was barren. You think that God's going to give a kid now? Take my maid. Go make a baby. We'll help God out. And Ishmael came about through Hagar. Okay, back to Romans. But hold your place there because we're going to come back to Genesis. So Paul asked the question, what does the scripture say about Abraham? Did Abraham work for his righteousness? Did he earn it? And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. That says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. To continue with the teaching, he says, now to one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due? You, you don't go out and do a bunch of work and then get a paycheck and think, oh, that's really gracious of you. I've had Nathaniel and Benjamin, they've been out like weed whacking. I said, hey, I'll hire you. We, we negotiated our deal for weed whacking. Valley Center, you know, it's all high. They come back, they've got the grass like in their ears and their eyes and they weren't that bad. It's like, hey, thanks a lot, guys. Here, here's the money I said I'd pay you. They say, oh, that's so gracious of you. You didn't have to do, no. It's like, no, they call it work because no, that's what, you're doing something that is so miserable that they say, we're going to compensate you for doing this because you're willing to do it. And Paul says that, that's what he says here. If you, if you work and you get paid, it's not credited as a favor, but it's what you do. You earned it. And then he takes this physical illustration and he turns it to the spiritual. If you're working for your salvation, there's no gift. First off, you can't work hard enough to earn salvation. But he turns to the one who does not work, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him, that's Christ, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. It's not by works, it's solely by faith. Abraham believed by faith totally and completely. Then he turns the story, he goes to King David, who everybody lived, well, everybody loved. They named the city after him. It was a, Jerusalem was known as the city of David. Most popular king in Israel history. So he quotes from David. Well, what does David have to say about this? And he's going to quote from Psalm 32. It's just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. And whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Abraham, David, both justified by faith, not by their works. And when you come to the cross, when you recognize that Jesus died and paid the penalty for your sins. That he took the wrath of God that was due you. It doesn't make you arrogant. It makes you humble. It takes away the boasting. When I see people that aren't walking with Christ, I, I think that would be me. That was me. I was worse than that. If I'm honest with myself, I'm like kind of arrogant even in my mind. This is why when I see people with tattoos, I think, oh, you idiot. 
And then I like, God hits me over the head. He's like, have you looked at your arms recently? I'm like, oh yeah, you idiot gunner. I was way, that's just like a little like daisy on their forearm. And I got, well, don't even worry about what I got. I don't preach in wife beaters because of my tattoos. Just Anna keeps daring me, but I don't, (laughs) I digress. When you understand what Christ did for you and that you had no other way of having a relationship with God, it humbles you, utterly humbles you. Who am I that God would consider me? That he would pay for my sin. And all the people around me that don't know him, Christ died for them too. Christ wants me to have his eyes and his heart and my love and compassion for them. Where is boasting? There is no boasting with the gospel. Then in verse 9, he transitions to, to the discrimination. Jews, Gentiles, tension. I often joke that uh, I should do it one day just to like mess with people, but then they're like, don't know my sense of humor. It's like, oh, welcome to the new members class. Are you circumcised? What? Well, I just want to measure your spirituality. Like, how, how's your walk with the Lord? Are you circumcised? Like, we don't talk about, like, this This doesn't matter to us. But to the Jews, this was everything. Circumcised, you, you carried the sign, the symbol of God's promise back to Abraham. To not be circumcised, you were a pagan, vile, a dog, they would call him. And, and so in this section, verse 9 through 12, my Bible, I highlighted any time the word circumcision came up in green. I didn't count them, but I think I see like 15 times in this little section. There's a lot of green in this section. And so Paul asked this question. Is the blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? What blessing are we talking about? The blessing of that your righteousness was credited to you through faith. Is this blessing only is this only to the Jewish people? Well, we were circumcised. We have all these promises. We've done all of these things. And so, yes, we believe and we're the only recipients. They weren't circumcised. They didn't obey the law. They didn't do all of this stuff. Certainly faith wouldn't cover the distance for them also. That's essentially the question he's asking. Paul and his brain led by the spirit is an amazing. I'm impressed with him. And he says, for we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? I am not an accountant, but when I sit on board meetings of various organizations and you see a big old spreadsheet of all of like the money going in and out. And they come for like a vote. Everybody approves. Oh, yeah, yeah. It looks good to me. No, like real red flags. But then if you get like a bookkeeper or an accountant and they start asking these questions, how was this transaction credited to the account? Was this a. I can't, I can't even pretend that I'm one of them. But they want to know how was this credited? And, and Paul's being the, the, the accountant here. He says, okay, now, now Abraham, we've already established, his righteousness came through faith. How was this righteousness credited to his count? Was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? How does it all fit? Verse 10. How was it then? How was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He answers, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So I'll turn back to 
Genesis chapter 16. I warned you that we do this. Let's get the circumcision story straight in our brains. And here in Genesis chapter 16, the very last verse, 16. Hagar just had Ishmael. A, a, a clear sort of not trusting God. He did well. He lapsed. His wife didn't know how it was going to happen. They had Ishmael. And we read in verse 16, Abraham or Abram, he hadn't got his new name yet, was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now, when Abraham was 99 years old, 13 years later after the birth of Ishmael, we don't know when verse 6 of chapter 15 happened, but I would speculate at least 15 years from the time that Abraham walked out of his tent, looked up at the stars, and he believed God, and God said, because of your belief, I am declaring you righteous for your faith. 15 years elapsed. Now we're in Genesis 17, verse 1. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. See the plural S, not just Israel, nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth, will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to God To be God to you and to your descendants, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant and you, my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout all their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. So in verses 1 through 8, you see a bunch of I wills, I wills, I will. God says, I will make this covenant between me and you. It's not about you. It's about me making this covenant with you. At the very end of this, he says, as you're keeping this, this is the sign you're going to be circumcised. The story makes me kind of, it's interesting to me. Abraham's out with, Abraham's out with God, got this whole thing's happening. Comes back with a new name. I'm not Abraham anymore, I'm Abraham. We get down to verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 Years old, bear a child. There's this plea for Ishmael we see from 19 through 23-ish. 
There's this great promise to Ishmael. If you follow Ishmael out, if you look at this, you have Israel, you have Isaac and Ishmael. From Isaac, the nation of Israel would come, the, the Jewish people. From Ishmael, you, you see the, um, the Middle Eastern people, the, or Middle Eastern, the Arabic people, Muslim people come out of this. You see these two world, like peoples sort of emerge through this. And then in verse 24, we read, Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And that very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son, all of the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So all of this, some 15 years after this, this declaration of righteousness. But can you imagine Abraham coming back from the tent? Right, boys, I need all the men, 13 years and older. We, uh, I was just out with God. We need to go, we need to go see the priest, but uh, I'll explain it when I get there. It's like a big, huge circumcision party. Can you imagine this? I, I mean, th- this was a major distinction. And so Paul's going to this story about Abraham and this circumcision as a, as a sign of the covenant. Going back to Romans, I'll let Paul continue his reasoning in Romans chapter 4. So in Romans chapter 4, where were we at? We were at verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised. It's a, the seal. When I think of a seal, you think of a diploma from either high school, college, grad school. The, the, this diploma you receive, all of the work was done. And at the end, the school puts the seal on it, saying that all of this work was done. It comes at the very end. And he's saying this seal It's a seal of this event of the righteousness of faith that already happened. The closest thing we have as Christians is baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. When you're baptized, when you're submersed underwater, it has nothing to do with your relationship with God and saving you. It's an event symbolizing a sign of something that happened prior. When you believed in Christ and you received the Spirit... You were moved from death into life, something that happened inwardly, but then you're baptized afterwards. It's a sign. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything other than help you grow in your faith because you're showing obedience and following after Christ. You are giving an example as a witness to those around you, your friends and family of what happened inwardly. So circumcision was similar to that. And this is what the case Paul is making. A seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Let me explain this to you. Like, catch my breath. God made the promise to Abraham that you'll be the father of all nations. You'll have all of these descendants. And Paul's saying that because 
Abraham's righteousness came before his circumcision. It came in faith alone. He was then circumcised. And in this, he's become the father of all. We read in Galatians earlier, I asked you to memorize it or to remember it at least. Hopefully it's still filed in your brain. He says that all of those who have come to faith in Christ are now heirs according to the promise. So circumcised or not circumcised, for us in our culture, circumcision isn't really a religious thing. So we all, unless you're Jewish, whether you're circumcised or not, you're in the uncircumcised category. Unless you converted to Judaism, just in case. There's always one that has like, oh no. uh." So he's saying that Abraham became the father of all through faith in Christ. If you're a Gentile and you're uncircumcised, we're grafted in before circumcision. And to those who have been circumcised, who followed in the tradition, they're grafted in also. There's no distinction. We are one in Christ. Addressing his second question. Then finally, in in verse 13, he says, dealing with the law. For the promise of for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. Remember the last verse in the previous chapter. He says, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So as he addresses the law issue again, he says in verse 14, for if you are living for those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. He's saying that if you're trying to maintain the law and you think that you're maintaining your relationship with God through religion, through works, through the system of doing certain things or not doing certain things, Ultimately, you've made faith void, but you're in worse trouble. James, Jesus's brother in James 2.10 says that if you maintain the whole law, yet stumble at one point, you're guilty of all of the law. He says, for the law brings about wrath. God never gave the law to save us. It was never intended as a ladder to get to heaven. It was given as a lens to see God's holiness so that as you began to try to live out the law, you recognize that you just can't do it. You can't. You can't be saved by it because you're not good enough. But now through faith, we've been declared righteous. And when I look at this, I, I, this section trying to, oh man, what are like the practical points? How, what, like Paul's brain and what he's saying and speaking to the Jews, how does this apply to us? It goes back to Romans 1.18 in my mind, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation. He then explains how we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can't do it. And so when we in our hearts are faced with God's holiness and we recognize, no, I need Jesus. I need Jesus if I want a relationship with God. You need to humble yourself. There's no boasting. There's no pride. There's, there's Jesus died for me. And so we humble ourselves before the Lord and we give our lives. We trust in him. It was his work. His work on the cross was a substitute for us. He did what we cannot do. 
he absorbed the wrath of God and satisfied the wrath of God. And in him, there's safety and security. The second point in this section, as we come to the gospel, there's unity. I don't know how many of you have traveled internationally or met people that you can't speak the same language with. But as a believer, when you meet another believer that doesn't speak your language, there's something there that like words can't explain the unity there that we're, there's no discrimination amongst us. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what country you're born in. We're one in Christ. The only time we're allowed to be divided is when it comes to football, soccer. Then it's totally game on. But in Christ, we're one. And then finally, this whole dealing with the law. Paul's going to explain it more. But So we can't maintain the law. Does that mean that we just go hog wild and do whatever we want and we don't have to worry about being pleasing to God because it's just by faith? And so let's just sin more because then we get more crazy. It actually makes God look better. Well, we're missing the point. When you recognize what God did for you, you just want to please him. You know, Deborah, who's in the back room right now, she's been asking me to like take her through Greek. So I've been like having memories kind of going through like Greek with her when I took Greek. And my Greek professor, Thomas, it's a dear, dear man. I mean, he still is. He's alive. He's a dear man. Whenever I see him, he looks at me, shakes my hand. He's, he says, you know what? I pray for you, Anna, and the kids every single week. People say that sort of stuff all the time, but it's like, he, when he says it, I believe it. And I know it. I have a tremendous amount of respect for this man. He taught me what it means to study, what it means to handle the word of God. He had a tremendous impact in my life. And it was during one of the classes, we were, had a little pop quiz, the pop quiz that came every single week. It always happened. It was a surprise quiz that we knew was coming. There wasn't very much weight to the test. And there were like 10 questions. And then there were Two extra credit questions. When I did the 10, oh, and you could take a break after you took the test or the quiz. So I knew the 10 questions. I answered them. I got 100%. I knew. When I got to the two extra credit, it was like a translation thing that would have taken like five extra minutes. So I'm like, I don't need the extra credit. I'm going to go take a break. I'm going to go get a Coke. So I went and got a coat, came back, and we grade the test there. And he's like, he's reviewing it. I said, Gunnar, why, why did you not do the extra credit? So I got 100%. I didn't need it. He looked at me. He's like, you're a military man, brother. Are you just doing this for the grade? Are you doing this because you want to, like, row and, and understand the word? And I was like, such a failure. I let Thomas down, and I... And it had the biggest impact on me. That that guy, he loves me and my family. He cares about me. He prays about us as a church. He cares about how I am. I want to please him not to earn his respect or to earn his love. It has everything to do with how much he loves me. That I want to be pleasing to him. And God loves me so much more. He loves you so much more. And so to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to him has nothing to do with earning our salvation or being religious. It has that God has revealed himself to us. He's told us what's best for us. And so we respond out of love for him. From the surface, it, 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 it might seem the same. 
But at the heart level, it's entirely different. Like if you're living for the Lord because you know how much he loves you and what he's done for you. Or if you're on the other side of it, trying to live by religion, you think that God's just an angry God and it's about outweighing your bad deeds with good deeds. It's all the difference in the world. And so Paul's saying that the law, all it does is condemn. But the law of faith is about love and trusting him because he loves us. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for those who believe. And Paul's trying to convey that to us. And Father, we do thank you that our relationship with you has nothing to do with our works. Father, we thank you that you loved us while we were yet sinners. That before we were created, Lord, that you knew us. And that on that cross, Jesus, out of a great love for us, Lord, took the wrath that was due us. Father, I pray for those in this room, Lord, or who may be listening online Lord, who may not fully grasp, Lord, how much God you love them and that they're placing themselves under the bondage of trying to do good works, trying to outweigh the, the good from the bad. Father, I pray that you would free them from that, Lord. Help them to see that they need Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have received Christ as Savior, Lord, we thank you. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that your wrath was satisfied in Christ and in him we have peace. We have confidence before you, not of our own works, but by his work. And so, Father, we confess any pride, any arrogance we have. Lord, we ask that as we go about, Lord, in this world, Lord, people that we see, people who get on our nerves, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have your eyes, to have your heart, Lord. Lord, that we would see them as one for whom Christ died. And Father, as it comes to the law, we pray, Lord, that as we live in this freedom in Christ, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the spirit, that we would live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you, that you may receive much glory through our testimony, Lord. We love you, Father. We're grateful people. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.